0: The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 28 this evening. The word of the Lord. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel And the king of Israel said to his servants, do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses, As your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not here another prophet of the Lord, of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. Jehoshaphat said, But not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imla. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chanaanah, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead in triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them, and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master, But each returned to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out, and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chananah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations, of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord is not spoken by me. And he said, Hear all you peoples. Here endeth the old covenant reading. The new covenant reading is taken from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 13, beginning at verse 5. We'll be reading through verse 10. This evening, the word of our God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority, but the Lord has given me for building up, and not for tearing down. Here endeth the new covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to 1 Kings chapter 22, beginning at verse 1, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. Why were 1st and 2nd Kings written? Uh, when we read the epistles, we naturally ask ourselves, uh, why does Paul write such a joyful and tender letter to the church at Philippi and then such a fiery letter to the church at Galatia? But when we read the biblical history, such as 1 and 2 Kings and First and 2 Chronicles, this is something that's easy for us to overlook. Now, to be clear, biblical history is just that. These are not made-up stories in order to make a point. But they're not just an account of what happened. The authors who write these histories are selecting the stories, and they are telling them in a particular way in order to make a particular point to the original audience who is reading those works. Uh, That could be very important for us because if we can understand why the history is written, It'll help us understand each of the original stories and how to apply them to our own lives. We can receive a great deal of help in discovering the purpose of these histories from the scholars who study these things, but actually getting to the main thrust of a history is not at all that complicated. The first and most basic thing we need to do is figure out where it ends. right? So First and Second Kings, remembering that they're originally one work... The, the work of Kings ends with the Babylonian exile of Judah, right? It's in the very early days of the Babylonian exile. And if we simply have that truth in mind, and we read through First and Second Kings a couple of times, we're going to realize that one of the main purposes that the author of this work wrote it was to explain to the people in exile why their God, their covenant God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, sent them into exile. We're going to discover that this God is incredibly long-suffering and that the people more than deserved it. But secondly, they're going to discover something else. As they look forward in hope toward the future, they're going to realize that they need a very different sort of king than all the kings that they've already had. I have titled tonight's sermon, Three Kings. Frankly, the contrast could hardly be any starker. First, there is the godly, but astonishingly naive, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. Second, there's the wicked, but shrewd king of Israel, Ahab. And third, there is the living God, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, if we had to choose whether to live under a king like Jehoshaphat or a king like Ahab, undoubtedly, almost all of us, probably all of us, would choose Jehoshaphat. But when we realize how foolish he is in many of his decisions, we realize that he's not an ideal ruler either. And if we actually had the choice, what we'd want to do is live under the rule of the living God. The true king who does nothing but what is right. Because the books of kings are fundamentally about the Lord, this also means that we are not to seek our connection to tonight's passage by considering how much President Biden or President Trump is like Ahab or Jehoshaphat, right? That's not how this works. Uh, And to make the point obvious, uh, the original audience is in exile. They don't even have a king. Rather, we're going to find our connection to tonight's story in terms of what the Word of God means, what it's like in terms of how we relate to the Word of God. We see Ahab and Jehoshaphat both relating to the Word of God in diverse ways. And the meaning of tonight's story, as I've already alluded, is to be found in the king that we truly need. We begin by setting the scene, verses 1-4. through For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are. My people is your people. My horses as your horses. Now, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know that the treaty that Ahab made with Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was wicked. The Lord was very angry with Ahab for doing this, and he pronounced a, judgment not only on ahab but on his dynasty his dynasty was going to come to an end because that was the last straw but tonight's passage we see something else from a purely human standpoint this treaty did exactly what ahab wanted it to do there's been three years of peace between syria and israel and during that time israel has regained its economic footing it has become wealthy and powerful. Now, as Israel regains her economic and military strength, Ahab has decided to flex his political muscles a little bit. Uh, This isn't here in this text, but we know this from extra-biblical history, that Ahab has just returned from battle. He's been part of a 12-king coalition that was resisting the superpower of their day, Assyria, and Ahab was an important player. From the annals of the king of Assyria the emperor, as it were, uh, who goes by the name of Shalmaneser III, Ahab had fielded the second largest army and over half of the chariots that went out into battle successfully against the Assyrian king. You know, that's the type of thing that can make a king feel pretty good about himself. Um, He's a big wheel now. Three years earlier, he'd been humiliated when he was trapped in Samaria. Yes, the Lord delivered him twice, but he was humiliated. Now he's a big player on the world stage. And Ahab had determined to invest heavily in his military. He had more than half the chariots. Think of those as the tanks of the ancient world. And now he wants to put that military to good use. Um, some of you may be familiar with Greek history, much more than the history of the ancient Near East, and you're going to see a parallel to this take place in a couple hundred years. Athens is going to lead the Greek city states to defend themselves against the great empire of that day, Persia. And as Athens takes the leadership role, they also start using it to puff themselves up, to gain a type of um, hegemony over their fellow Greeks, and also for the money to start flowing into the Athenian coffers. And in fact, that's a pattern that repeats itself throughout history. Uh, Indeed, the United States has actually done a fair amount of this since World War II in the 20th and 21st centuries. It is therefore not surprising that Ahab would look at this disputed town and think, that really ought to be under my control. So Ahab says to his servants, do you not know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand Of the king of Syria. Now, I can say with a fair degree of confidence that probably none of you were talking about Ramoth Gilead tonight over dinner. Uh, So, where exactly is Ramoth Gilead and why is it so important to Ahab? Uh, Whenever you hear that title Gilead, uh, no matter what it's attached to, you know it's on the eastern side of the Jordan. And in this case, Ramoth Gilead is some 25 miles or so east of the Jordan River, it's not vital in any way to Israel, right? It's not an obvious point where you would say we need to keep control of this, except for one thing. Ramoth Gilead was located on the north and south road, the King's Highway, where it intersects with a road, a major trade route that ran west to east. That is, trade traveled there. And from a king's standpoint, you put a toll booth on it. Whoever controls Ramoth Gilead is going to be able to raise tax revenues on trade throughout that region. As Dale Ralph Davis puts it, it is a shame to have a turnpike running through a place if you are not sitting in the toll booth. And that helps us understand what Ahab's motives are. Uh, Ahab is not interested in liberating the people of Ramoth Gilead from Syrian control. He's not interested in benefiting them at all. He is not interested in expanding the kingdom of God. He is interested in a point on the map that is going to increase the money that is flowing into the royal coffers, that is, into his own control. We can therefore see the foolishness of Jehoshaphat who comes to his defense, not out of some great principle, but Jehoshaphat just throws himself body and soul, as it were, behind Ahab, saying, I'm going to do whatever you want in order for you to get more money. Uh, That in itself is quite foolish. And we see how quickly and how fully he commits to going with Ahab to war. Uh, Look at verse 4 once again with me. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Now, when you have an alliance with somebody, this sort of rousing declaration of loyalty and commitment can feel really good in the moment. And by the way, that doesn't have to be between kings, that could be between you and someone else at work or a partner of some sort of enterprise, but but this rush to save this good-sounding thing, can end up costing you a great deal. And in the case of national rulers, it can end up costing the people of those nations a great deal as well. Like it is with us, Jehoshaphat's foolishness did not spring up full-born all at once. Uh, earlier, Jehoshaphat had entered into a treaty with Ahab by marrying off They're children. Um, Adaliah, the daughter of Ahab, and this can get really confusing because they both have children named Jehoram and Adaliah that must have barred them from each other, but Jehoshaphat um, takes his son Jehoram, marries him to Adaliah, the daughter of Ahab, so that the treaty that they have is gonna be forged together in their own family relationships. This was a virtually universal practice in the ancient world. Now, you might be wondering how a pious king like Jehoshaphat could marry off his son to somebody as wicked as Ahab, and of course, his wife Jezebel, to their kid. Uh, But we should just take it back one step and remember that Omri married off his son to a Sidonian princess who worshipped Baal. I think this is actually a warning to us about something very practical. If you take something that's a universal practice in a society that everybody does, every king did these sorts of things, it is very, very hard to not simply do that in your own life. Now, I trust that none of you is gonna be arranging marriages for your children, uh, either with Sidonians or with children of Jezebel and Ahab and so on. That's not your role, Uh, probably for most of you anyway. But all of us have a responsibility as we help raise, and certainly as you raise your own children, to the fear of the Lord to get them to understand that it is far, far, far more important. In fact, it is vital for them to marry a spouse who is devoted to Jesus Christ rather than to wash that under the rug like, well, that would be a nice extra but what's really important is that they marry a doctor, a lawyer, uh, somebody with an MBA from Harvard. Someone's going to get ahead in this world. By the way, I've seen plenty of Christians who have lost sight of that with their own children. Right? So we ought to learn from this. It is easy to go along with the path of the world, and we have to work to help ourselves, to help our children, do that which God is calling us to for his glory, but also ultimately for our own good. Uh, verses 5 through 9. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel... Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Well, go up! For the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imla, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, son of Imla. Now we were already introduced to Jehoshaphat in verses 1 through 4. Intriguingly, Jehoshaphat will be mentioned 17 times by name in this chapter, but Ahab will not be named until verse 20. Uh, the author here is skillfully doing something by naming Jehoshaphat over and over again, but not treating Ahab according to his person, but simply according to his office, the king of Israel. He's putting the light more brightly on Jehoshaphat. Now, part of the reason why he's doing this is there's such a sharp contrast between Jehoshaphat and Ahab. Ahab is the shrewd but truly wicked king of Israel, while Jehoshaphat is the pious but rather naive and ineffective king of Judah. Now, I think part of the reason why he's doing this, why he wants us to consider Jehoshaphat, why he wanted to consider Uh, for the people in the Babylonian captivity to consider Jehoshaphat, is they could very easily have looked at Ahab and kings like him and said, you know, the problem with Ahab is he's wicked. All we need is a pious king. But when they see how ineffective Jehoshaphat is, they will realize that getting a pious but ineffective king who lacks wisdom and discipline, that's not going to solve their problems either. It points to the fact that we are still needing to look elsewhere for a king who will lead us into righteousness. Uh, Just tuck that idea away, see how it works in this chapter, see how it works in the historical books in general. We do see Jehoshaphat's piety on display in verse 5. It is Jehoshaphat and not Ahab's servants who ask that we inquire for a word from the Lord. But we also see his foolishness in that very request. Why didn't Jehoshaphat ask to inquire for a word from the Lord before he committed to going to war? I mean, that's a pretty big decision. You know, you do not need to pray when you get up in the morning about literally every decision you make. You're going to be paralyzed by it. If you want to eat a bowl of raisin bran, you do not need to pray pray whether or not you're going to eat Cheerios instead and wait on the Lord to give you a sign. But if you're a national leader in Israel, you ought not to be committing your nation to war apart from seeking the word of God and through diligent prayer and the counsel of wise and godly men. Jehoshaphat has done none of that. Jehoshaphat has committed his people to battle in a way that is going to be painful for his own subjects. Uh, We might be surprised that Ahab could so quickly gather 400 prophets together, Uh, but we should realize that these are not, even though the ESV kind of implies they are a bit, these are not prophets of Yahweh. Uh, These are prophets that are false prophets. They are in fact what uh, scholars call court prophets. A very common thing in the ancient world and common in both Israel and Judah at different times that is these are religious figures who were really there to serve the king not to serve the king of kings instead of bringing Yahweh's word to the earthly king they were basically going to tell this earthly king whatever he wanted to hear and by the way all throughout the ancient Near East this is not just in Israel and in Judah um, Kings would surround themselves with priests and prophets, religious figures of various sorts, in order to give a veneer of respectability to what they were doing. It actually lent legitimacy to their reign if people thought, hey, you know what, Pharaoh, he might be a god himself, but if he's not, he's actually the representative of God, and the god, or gods, is giving him guidance. So when he makes these big decisions, he has the divine sanction on him, we better do what the king says. And that is clearly what is going on with Ahab. Ahab, after all, clearly wants to go conquer Ramoth Gilead. And therefore, it is not surprising that these court prophets respond, go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Um, This is actually one of those places where our tradition in English of translating the covenant name of God, Yahweh, with all capital Lord, you know, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, actually hurts us a bit. Um, The problem is, is that uh, whether you put it in all caps or you put just a first letter or capital letter, you say it the same way. You say Lord. And so we kind of blend these two ideas together, like they're both titles that are respectful ways to address somebody in power. I I want you to notice here that Lord is not in all caps. That is, these prophets are not coming to Ahab and saying, thus says Yahweh. They're saying, thus says the boss, the master, the big guy upstairs. Now, undoubtedly, some of these prophets, I think undoubtedly, some of these prophets probably did prefer Yahweh over Baal to the degree they cared about the gods at all. But they were using a generic title for Lord precisely so they could all get along. You know, some prophets of Baal, some prophets of Asherah some prophets of Yahweh, but you know what? We're all religious leaders in the community, right? And after all, our goal is not to actually tell them what God says, but to win the favor of the king, Ahab, by telling Ahab what he wants us to say to him. The reality of court prophets has two very practical lessons for us. Uh, We don't have court prophets per se today, but we have something very similar, and we have problems like this that run through the church. We will come to the second lesson a bit later in the sermon. But first, we should realize that there are plenty of ordained Christian ministers, some of whom actually are Christians. put putting quotation marks, I mean people who identify as Christian ministers. There are plenty of ordained Christian ministers who are happy to tell you whatever you want to hear. I trust you all get that, right? It's not hard to get people that are going to, you know, you want certain things, they'll, they'll give it to you, as long as you turn around and praise them and pay them. Beloved, this has always been the case. This is not something unique to the 21st century, and I trust it will continue to be the case until the day that the Lord calls you home. Here's the problem. We all like it when people tell us what we want to hear, um, You know, everyone says, I don't like to be flattered, but the truth is we all kind of like it a little bit. A little bit bit of flattery is okay, right? We like being told that we can go on with our lives without making radical changes. That, you know, we might need to make a few adjustments here or there, but there aren't aspects of our lives that, by the Spirit of God, we need to put to death. So we have a natural temptation to listen to these people who want to flatter us Or give us permission to go on in our sin as though our sins were no big deal. Um, I'm going to let you know a little secret here. Ryan doesn't know this. Um, I don't know how many of you know this other than the elders. Uh, When we were looking for an associate pastor, every single person I spoke to, I found something where I disagreed with them, usually from one of their sermons. And I would bring it up. I'd point out that I thought they were wrong about something. Well, why would I do that? Two reasons. First, we don't want a minister who thinks he's above being challenged or corrected or he might have something wrong. But actually, that wasn't my big goal. My big goal was to see whether or not they would simply come around to agree with me because they thought that getting along with me would help them get to the next stage of the interview. Or their concern was What does God's word say? Are we going to focus on the truth? Now, the reality has always been the case for 20 centuries for ministers, but I think in America today, it's a particularly important issue. One of the most important aspects of a minister's anatomy is that he has a fully functioning spine. But he's willing to tell people what God says, whether they like it or they don't because our church in North America is plagued by ministers who frankly, and I don't mean in any way offensive to women, it's just a problem when it's men, who are effeminate and actually can't stand up for the truth. If you're wondering, you got past that step. The reality of court prophets, therefore, reminds us that we have to take this very seriously. That we don't want those sort of people in our lives, and yet it's easy to drift into listening to them. And this is where we should give some credit to Jehoshaphat. 400 court prophets come forward, and they all give the same message. Yet in verse 7, King Jehoshaphat asks, Isn't there someone else? Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? Now, regrettably, the, the translators of the ESV, if you have different translations, it'll read differently. The translators of the ESV have let their interpretation of the passage override what I, I would think is a, um, well, a more faithful translation, but also a more literal translation in this particular case. The word the ESV translates another is almost always translated still. And that's really how it should be translated here. See, Jehoshaphat is not saying, I've just heard from 400 prophets of Yahweh. I'd like to hear from one more. Jehoshaphat looks out at these court prophets and goes, they're not prophets of Yahweh. You know, They're just telling the king what he wants to hear. Is there not still yet a prophet of the Lord that we can hear what God has to say? That, that's what Jehoshaphat is driving at. Jehoshaphat was naive and at times quite foolish, but he was pious, and he did fully understand how these court prophets functioned. Uh, Ahab actually knows that as well. Uh, Ahab, in fact, knows that there is a prophet, someone we're going to find out in a moment. He's interacted with a number of times. There is a prophet who speaks for the Lord, and he hates him. Why does he hate Micaiah? Because Micaiah tells him what Yahweh has to say. He hates Micaiah precisely because he hates the living God. Um, I didn't mention this last week, but this is really, in my judgment, the strongest reason to think that Ahab showed remorse rather than repentance when he heard the word from Elijah of God's judgment on his kingdom. After all, it is not possible to genuinely repent and still hate the word of God. Those, those things just can't go together. Ahab hates Micaiah precisely because he speaks for Yahweh. Nevertheless, he can't really get out of it now, and so to satisfy Jehoshaphat, he has the messenger go to fetch Micaiah. But while that messenger goes to get him, one of the court prophets steps forward. Look at verse 11 with me. And I've gotten saying this wrong at least twice tonight, so let's see if we can get it on the third run it's actually a lot harder than it sounds, uh, than it might seem. And Zedekiah, the son of Chena'anah, made for himself horns of iron and said, thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, go up to Ramoth Gilead in triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Now, while they're waiting for Micaiah, these 400 prophets are continuing to go, and undoubtedly, they're just telling the same story. And Zedekiah steps forward with a actually pretty dramatic sort of visual image. He's taking the leadership role. King, you know, just do this, right? God is behind you. And of course, as we know, Zedekiah is a false prophet. But did you catch the shift in terms when Zedekiah speaks about God, see, he does not say Lord with small letters. He says Lord in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Yahweh! What's Zedekiah doing? Well, as will become completely clear, Zedekiah remains a false prophet, but he is picking up on Jehoshaphat's insistence on a prophet of Yahweh, and he says, I can do that. I'll fill in the blanks, right? You wanna you want hear from Yahweh? I'll pretend I'm speaking for Yahweh. And this leads us to the second very, very practical lesson for us to grasp from the court prophets of the ancient world. There are plenty of Christian ministers who are happy to use all the orthodox terminology, right? Just because people use the right language it doesn't mean they're orthodox or telling you the truth of God. There are plenty of ministers who continue to say all the creeds. Uh, it's true, but they've redefined the terms in their minds so that they don't mean like what you think they mean. And um, when they take their ordination vows, they do so with crossed fingers because you know, nobody actually believes that. It's just an old tradition, right? The church in the United States and in Western Europe is filled with ministers do precisely that thing. I still remember more than two decades ago, I was listening to an Episcopal priest uh, give an Easter sermon on the resurrection of Jesus, and honestly, I was really surprised for the first four or five minutes what a great sermon it was, until it dawned on me that he was being intentionally ambiguous, that is, he was choosing his word so that if you wanted to believe that he was talking about the bodily resurrection of Jesus, well, that was fine, you could do that. But if you wanted to believe that the resurrection was about the triumph of the human spirit, and of course, you know, the body stays dead in the tomb, well, that was fine too. Now, on the one hand, uh, it takes a pretty extraordinary intellect and skill set as a speaker for someone to maintain that sort of ambiguity uh, with with such um, eloquence. But on the other hand and this is the much more important hand it's a fearful thing to think what it would be to be someone like that who's going to stand before God on judgment day and have to give an answer for how he trifled with the very word of God how he trifled with the resurrection of Jesus Christ well once again I trust that none of you are going to become two-faced preachers But you do need to guard yourself against those who dishonestly borrow a great deal of Christian vocabulary while denying fundamental truths about who the Lord is and what he has done. Thankfully, the Lord also sends true men of God to remind us of the difference. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. Now, as Walter Brueggemann points out, the messenger assumes, by the way, the king assumed this too. The messenger assumes, as did everyone at the court of Ahab, that prophets exist in order to advance royal policies. I mean, you can do your religious thing wherever you want, but you better be in favor of whatever the king wants. And Brueggemann's right about that. But I think we shouldn't miss the fact that among those who love religion without being devoted to Jesus Christ, coming up to our own day, Who happen to just love religious stuff. Not devoted to the Lord. Not devoted to Jesus Christ. Not rocking the boat is about as close as they ever get to a prime directive. All the religious people got to get along because we're faith leaders in the community. Uh, Trust me, uh, that's what happens all the time. There's organizations that I've always refused to join, but I've been invited to on numerous occasions that are called ministeriums. Where all the religious leaders of the community can get together and do weird things like pray together when they don't even believe in the same God. That is a common reality. Micaiah, however, is a different breed. This true prophet insists, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. You don't have to be a minister for this to be true. To be a man or a woman of God means you do not accommodate the word of God to any mere human being, even if it's the president of the United States or a justice on the Supreme Court. Now initially, Micaiah mocks all of the court prophets and the whole process of trying to provide legitimacy um, to what Ahab had so clearly already determined to do. Verse 15 and when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle? Or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Yeah, go up, triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Now, this is one of those places where I just wish we had a recording. I'd love to hear his sarcasm. No one misses it. Ahab gets it. He's going, Yeah, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll give the same message everyone else wants to tell you. You know, it's a joke. Kicks Ahab off. You know what Ahab hated as much as he hated the word of God? There weren't a lot of things. He hated being made fun of. And that's precisely what Micaiah is doing. Micaiah is saying, I am not going to lend a veneer of legitimacy to what you're doing here by pretending that you're serious about this. Ahab, I know you. You don't care about the word of God. I'm on the stage. You're going to move me off. You're going to do what you want. Anyway, and so he mocks him. The king said to him, How many times must I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Um, apparently, they've done this dance before. And yet, it should be obvious that Ahab has no interest at all in hearing and honoring the word of Yahweh. Uh, Ahab's the one who introduces with Jezebel Baal worship in Israel. Twice when Ahab greets Elijah, he makes very clear he has nothing that he wants from the Lord. The first time he calls Elijah the troubler of Israel, and the second time he says, yeah, you're the prophet of Yahweh, oh my enemy. And he didn't want to hear from Micaiah either. He says, I hate him. Ahab does not want to hear the word of the Lord. In fact, he hates it. But as I say, the one thing that Ahab hates as much as he hates the word of the Lord is that he hates being made fun of. He wants Micaiah to get on with it so that he could get on with ignoring whatever Micaiah has to say and to do what he already determined he was going to do. So Micaiah drops the sarcasm and cuts it straight. Verse 17, and he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd, and the Lord said, these have no master, but each return to his home in peace. Now, the image of the people of God being like sheep without a shepherd is a very important one in Scripture. Uh, often it refers simply to shepherds who don't care for the people. And the Lord will say, well, I'm going to send him a true shepherd, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. But actually here it's pointing in a different direction Micaiah is making clear, that is, the Lord is making clear through Micaiah that Ahab is going to be killed in battle, right? Not not simply they're not going to have a shepherd, they're not going to have a master, a leader. And actually, the Lord does something very interesting with this image. He surprises the natural expectation. What happens to sheep when their shepherd is killed? What happens to sheep without a shepherd? They wander around, they fall in ditches, They get in all kinds of trouble. That's what sheep do. By the way, that's us. We're sheep, right? It's not a very flattering image. Not here. In this prophecy, the sheep go home in peace. The message is simple and direct. The Lord is telling Ahab, you go out in the battle, you are going to die. And you know what? Your people will be better off without you. You dying is one of the best things that can happen to the people of your land. Uh, Richard Nelson offers this astute observation. The peasant who can go back to the farm in safety may not care about the failure of national strategy. Thus this narrative moves against any blank check on religious approval for national gods. God cannot be relied on to support the state, but he is totally free to protect the covenant people even from their rulers." No wonder the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? We then hear a fascinating elaboration of what's taking place behind the scenes. I won't say a lot about this, um, but I do know that this passage sometimes troubles Christians, and I do want to say something about that. Verses 19-23. And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. But his spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means and he said i will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets and he said you are to entice him and you shall succeed go out and do so now therefore behold the lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets the lord has declared disaster for you No, as I say, this glimpse into the heavenly throne room has troubled some readers. Um, They ask an honest and natural question. How can a perfectly holy God be so happy to go along with a plan to utterly deceive the king of Israel? Do Do you at least feel that question, right? How can a perfectly holy God be willing to at least go along with a plan of deception against the king of Israel? And what people miss when they ask that question is that God is actually telling Ahab that's what's going on. Right? This is not some secret trap but he's laying for Ahab that Ahab could not understand, but he's sending a lying spirit. He's going to, in the name of the Lord, tell him something that's not true. What the Lord is making clear is that these false prophets, these court prophets, court prophets, by the way, that Jezebel and Ahab pay for, They've recruited these prophets, they pay for these prophets to tell them what they want to hear, but they're going to tell them what's not true. And he's going to believe their lie, because he believes the lie of the prophets that he's put together, rather than the word of God, he's going to die in battle. Uh, This glimpse into the throne room makes two things, I think, abundantly clear. First, the Lord does want Ahab to go to war, because precisely because the Lord is bringing Ahab into judgment, right? He's he's delayed judgment. He showed astonishing mercy to Ahab. Now it's done. But second, the Lord is making clear of it, listening to the court prophets. Court prophets, as I say, whom Ahab and Jezebel both cultivate and pay, will lead to destruction. To the degree that Ahab finds deceptive comfort in the word of these false prophets, Ahab will, in fact, be deceiving himself. Well, not surprisingly, the court prophets aren't that all all that excited about Micaiah's message. So Zedekiah, the son of Chanaanah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, how did the spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? Now, If you imagine that this is a once-off event, I'd just invite you to read some church history. Right? This pattern happens all the time. By the way, read the Bible. It happens in the Bible, too. The false teachers not only fight back against the true teachers, it is not at all uncommon for them to do so as though they are the true defenders of Christianity. You know, this this happened with uh, Machen. We think about the founding of our denomination. Right? Um, He was disciplined by the Northern Presbyterian churches, though he was the problem and they were the defenders of Christ's church. Uh, Think about uh, not only Machin, but men like Al Moeller, who have been attacked simply for standing up for the basics of biblical Christianity as though they were unloving and not following the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And just like with Zedekiah, the false ministers of our day are not shy about pretending to be true defenders of the faith while simultaneously attacking those who declare the most basic truths of the word of God. Verse 25. And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. Well, we're not um, surprised that Micaiah doesn't back down. But his commitment to the word of the Lord has at least in the short term a pretty significant cost in his life. Verses 26 through 28. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And then, obviously, looking around, he says, Here, right? Listen up, all you peoples. Reminded here of a story that R.C. Sproul liked to tell about himself when uh, he was in college. He first became a Christian. And, you know, it's a natural thing. You're a young man being converted in college and you come to grasp who Jesus is. You want to make an impact for the kingdom of God. And R.C. said, I found myself praying, Lord, make me a great man of God like one of the prophets. Then he thought, well, if I'm going to be a prophet, I might want to read the prophets. And then he noticed his prayers started changing quite a bit. These men of God that served as prophets in the Bible, by the way, they're female prophets too. But in terms of the suffering, it's these men that seem to suffer most Brutally, um, they suffer a great deal for the truth in the short term, right? Waiting on eternal life. Uh, Why does the king persecute, persecute Micaiah? Ahab wrongly imagines, as do the tyrants in every age, that they can silence the word of God by locking up the messenger. As the apostle Paul will say, the word of God, is not chained. For his part, Micaiah knows perfectly well that Ahab is not going to listen to him. And so he addresses not the king at the end, but the people. Instead of hedging his bets, you know, he doesn't go, hey, I'm doing the best I can. Right? No prophet is perfect, right? No, that's not what he says. Instead of hedging his bets, Micaiah is saying, if what I am saying does not come to pass, then you will know that I am a liar, just like Zedekiah. But if I'm, what I'm saying does come to pass, then you ought to know that the word of God is in your midst, and you need to turn and repent and embrace the Lord as he speaks to you in his word. Well, this is a dramatic passage, but what does it mean for us? I mean, other than us learning something that happened, you know, 20 728 hundred years ago. Well, what does this mean for us? To answer that question, we need to ask, what did this passage mean for the original audience who first heard this book during the Babylonian exile? Just two things. First, this passage makes clear, along with the rest of the book, remember right at the end of 1 of Kings, this passage makes clear that the Lord was both incredibly long-suffering towards Israel and entirely just in sending them into exile, first Israel and then Judah. It is staggering to consider just how evil Ahab was, how hard-hearted he was towards the word of God when he had repeatedly seen what the Lord said through his prophets come to pass. Please remember that about Ahab. This is not his first encounter He he saw the fire fall on Mount Carmel, but that's not the whole thing. He's had the prophet come to him and tell him about God's word of deliverance, not once, but twice. He had Elijah tell him about the Lord sending rain. It all came true. And he still hates the word of God. Second, this passage would have made clear to the exiles that they, by extension we, have a problem. Yes, some kings are better than others, but if the Lord returns them from exile, just so they can try a little bit harder next time, the cycle of a few pretty good kings, no perfect kings, a few pretty good kings, a few pious kings who are actually very ineffective, and a bunch of evil kings is just gonna repeat itself over and over again, and the Lord's gonna have to send them to exile, and then into exile and then that remnant in exile forever. We can't get there from here if our rulers are simply going to be kings but arise from mere men. What the people of God need is not a slightly better king, but an entirely different type of king. And thankfully, this is precisely the sort of king that the Lord was promising them through the prophets. Please remember, as people are reading 1 Kings and 2 Kings, they're also reading the words of Isaiah. As we read in Isaiah chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, Beloved, this is our King. This is our Good Shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Oh, come, let us adore him. That's what we sing, right? Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Amen.